Well, good morning. <clears throat> My name is Andrew Clausen, and I am one of the new uh, pastoral fellows on staff here at Christ Community, and I have um, just been blessed with an opportunity to serve the Olathe congregation um, in preaching this morning, and I was here a couple months ago doing the same thing, and just, um, yeah, I wanted to introduce myself briefly in that um, my wife, Greer, and I moved here a little over four months, three months ago, and I've been serving on staff here at Christ Community for three months now as a pastoral fellow, and um, my wife, Greer, and I met in Omaha, Nebraska, which is where I'm from, um, and um, spent a few years there, and then went to seminary, and now after seminary, Christ Community, for those of you who don't know, Christ Community has this fellowship program where they bring kind of fresh meat out of seminary on staff and, um, you know, form us. As, as new pastors, which has just been a blessing for our family. As I said, my wife Greer and I have been married four, uh, four years, four great years. We have a son who's two and a half, almost three. His name is Owen. Um, he was here first service. And um, we are just really thankful to be here. We're really thankful for Christ's community. Um, when we were here a couple months ago, um, we just were really encouraged and supported by this congregation. And so let me just say thank you um, for that support because we, we have just felt really blessed in being here. So that being said, why don't, we, um, why don't we get started here? Last week, we started this new series called Jolted, 10 Startling Statements of Jesus, right? And Nathan led off with, um, with kind of the overarching sermon that talks about how if we really want to save our life, we have to lose it. A startling statement indeed. In order to actually follow Christ, we have to lose our life. We have to deny ourselves in order to follow Christ, right? And this week, I want to start with something a little different. I want to start with a question, right? There's nothing like a good question to, to get the brain moving. You know, it's early in the morning. It's Sunday morning. We all had lots going on yesterday. College football was on. There's lots going on. So let's, let's think about a good question that'll get our, our, our brain moving in the right direction. The question I want to ask you is this. What is one thing that you have that you could not live without? What is one thing that you currently have that you could not live without? A good portion of my childhood was spent moving. Um, I, as I said, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, and my mom and dad divorced when I was three years old. And um, after that, my brother and I spent most of the time living with my mom. And in order to support two little boys, she had to move to kind of be close to where she was working so she could figure, it out, figure out child care. So we were just constantly moving. We were always moving. Before high school, I went to seven different schools. So including the four years in high school, I went to eight different schools, K through 12. I hate moving, right? How many of you guys hate moving? Oh, praise the Lord. I, I think that has to do something with the exodus, like we're just always grumbling through this transition into the promised land. I don't know, that might be a, a bit of a, a, a theological jump. But that being said, I hate moving because I have done it so much. My wife Greer and I have moved three times in less than three and a half years. I loathe the fact that in less than two years, we have to move yet again. And one of the worst parts about moving, one of the hardest things about moving is that it causes us to make decisions that aren't easy for us to make, right? We have to decide what's included in the move. We have to figure out what's going on that truck and what's not, right? 
And that's not easy. I don't know if it's easy for you. It's not easy for me. We fall somewhere in between kind of the poles of hoarding and purging, right? Somewhere in between. We never want to say we're on either of those two things, right? We're somewhere in between. Now, just a brief confession. (laughs) A brief confession. Greer and I actually brought boxes to Kansas that we never opened in our move to Illinois. How many of you guys can identify with that? Come on. Yeah, you're kind of laughing like, oh, that's actually me. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? And I think what's true about that, actually, is that we all might tend a little bit more, maybe this way is the way I pointed, towards hoarding than we do towards purging, right? We love that A&E show called Hoarders for a reason, right? There's an audience for that, for that show because all of us want to look at those people and say, well, we're not as bad as them, Right? <laughs> And the truth of the matter is that purging is really hard. Purging is one of the hardest things we do. I mean, how do you decide what to get rid of and what not to get rid of? How do you discern what's worthy of staying in your house? What's worthy of being in your life? How do you decide what to give up? What's worth giving up and what's what's not worth giving up? And yet I ask these questions because I think all of us deal with these same issues. I think all of us understand that at the end of the day, we don't want to give up much. You know, wait just a second. Don't throw away that 14-year-old Husker poster. I might need that soon, right? Don't throw away that t-shirt from junior year of high school. I love that t-shirt. Don't get rid of my doll. Don't get rid of my Super Nintendo. Don't get rid of that dining room set that isn't even going to fit in the new house, right? I mean, these are all kind of trivial things. I understand that. Yet, it it kind of reveals something about all of us, doesn't it? It reveals something about the way we understand our possessions, the way we understand that which we have, the way we cling to the things that we've either gained or, or inherited. It's symptomatic of deeper issues within all of us. And I think whether we like it or not, It tells us something about where we find our security, our significance, and our satisfaction. It tells us about where we see those things being fulfilled. Well, our text today tells us something about that as well. And the thing that our text tells us most forcefully that I find in this text is in order to enter God's kingdom, we must be willing to give up everything for Christ. I'll say that again. In order to enter God's kingdom, we must be willing to give up everything for Christ. Now, as we transition to the text, if you will, grab your Bible and open to Mark chapter 10. And as we transition there, why don't I open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, I praise you for this text, because this text reaches into the depths of my own heart and really pushes me to understand you more. Lord, I pray in my weakness to even deliver such a message, Lord, that you would plant seeds, that you would water those seeds, that you would grow those seeds in all of us, in all of our hearts. Lord, help us see where we cling to that which we have instead of to the Savior. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now again, as you're turning to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, let me just bring everybody up to speed, kind of the same place. Mark chapters 8 through 10 is really this section of Mark where he's hitting home this idea of discipleship, okay? He's pounding home this concept that Jesus is, is talking about discipleship, whether it's with his disciples or whether it's with people who come up to him, and in this case, somebody asks him a question. He's, he's getting at the idea of discipleship. He's getting at who he is and what it means to follow him. And so in this portion, what we're going to start to see is our passage this morning has two sections. It has a specific application and a general truth. The first section, a specific application is in 17 to 22 and a general truth in verses 23 to 31. Let's pick up in the specific application. I'm reading from the ESV, and this will be starting in verse 17 of chapter 10 of Mark. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." This text here, we see the specific application of the general truth we're going to find in the next section. Now, Jesus is setting out, and what we'll see soon is he's setting out towards Jerusalem. Jesus is just about to leave on his journey, and in his journey, he's turning his face towards his final earthly act. He's turning toward the cross. The passage right after our passage shows us that. And here we find in this text, right, this text that I just read, that this rich man runs up to him just as he's leaving and asks him this question. Now, I don't know about you guys. When I read that, I got a little frustrated. Did any of you guys see this jump off the page? Did any of you see as Jesus was walking out the door, a guy comes up and asks him a question? That didn't frustrate any of you? How many of you guys are are preparing your things at work or wherever you're about to go um, out of town or something like that, and somebody runs up to you and asks you a question that you can't answer in two minutes or less, right? How many of you at 447, that one person comes up with that one question, that one project, that one problem that you can't answer, that you can't deal with in 13 minutes or less, you know who that person is, don't you? You're thinking about that person right now. Wherever you work or, or wherever you do what you do, you're thinking about that person right now, aren't you? Yep. If you're, if you're not thinking about that person right now, let me tell you something. It's you. <laughs> I'm just saying. I saw a lot, of, a lot of people going. Come and see me afterwards. Um, but that being said, look at what Jesus does here. On his way out of town, moving towards his cross, Jesus stops and he answers the man. He meets him where he is and the text says he loves him. Jesus loves this man. In our frustration, we would run away from him, but Jesus gives him the time of day and he serves him in this way. 
Jesus' response to the man was relatively positive because I think the man's question was sincere. We see that instead of the way that most people approach Jesus, he came and he knelt. He comes and shows this, this humility, this depth of love and respect for the rabbi that most don't have. His question isn't, isn't a veiled trap trying to nail Jesus. His question is sincere. The humility is, is affirmed by his posture, but also in how he responds to Jesus' reply. And what we see here is this man is, is wealthy. It says he's wealthy. It says he has riches. It says he has possessions. So it's kind of hitting it from every side, trying to say, this guy has. This guy has a lot. And he asks this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The million-dollar question. Jesus reframes the question and says this. He reframes the question in terms of discipleship. He reframes eternal kingdom in terms of discipleship. As I said, that's where we are within the whole of Mark. And he says to the man, he responds lovingly by saying, sell and give all that you have to the poor. He says, give everything you have to the poor. Kids, that means take all your toys, all your clothes, your dog, your cat, whatever is valuable to you, and give it to the poor. Young people, your cell phones, your video games, your textbooks. No, I was just kidding about that one, not your textbooks. You would give those away really fast. But give all those things or sell all those things and give them to the poor. He says, give your, your, your money, your house, your car, everything you have, your bank account, to the poor in order to follow me. Can you imagine the, the face that this guy gives Jesus back, the look on his face? What would your face look like? How would your heart feel if Jesus said these things to you? We see here that Jesus loves him, though. The text says he loves him. And this is how Jesus loves him. He tells him the hard truth. He doesn't give him some parable, some mystery, some enigmatic statement. He doesn't cloud his statement in some kind of, you know, like lofty and and ethereal words. No. He just delivers the truth to the man. And the text says he loves him by doing that. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's not usually what I think of love, right? I mean, I think of love, generally speaking, as like being really nice to people, right? Not telling them the hard things because that, you know, kind of makes things awkward and it makes things hard, but Jesus, we have this, this beautiful picture of our Savior, of the Lord himself, God and man, meeting people where they are and loving them by telling them the hard thing. Jesus encourages each of us to tell people the hard thing if, if that is what it's going to take to push them closer to Christ, to nudge them in the direction of the Savior to bring them back to the one who's calling them to come and follow them. I'm not trying to push anybody here, you know, into some kind of critical judgmentalism and just tell everybody they're wrong all the time. But if your purpose is trying to help people come back to Christ, acknowledging that we are all sinners in need of this Savior, Jesus calls us to not shy away from a challenging word to somebody in terms of moving them along in their discipleship. This is how Jesus loves them. This is how Jesus loves us. And discipleship for this man 
looks like, giving up all that he has, selling it, or giving it to the poor. That's what discipleship looks like for this man in this story, right? I think it is. So Jesus, in the typical way that he asks people into a relationship of discipleship, says to the man, come, follow me, right? We see those words throughout the Gospels. He says, follow me, a call to discipleship. In order to enter God's kingdom, though, we must be willing to give up everything for Christ. Jesus calls this man to give up everything in order to gain everything. Jesus calls this man to give up everything in order to gain everything. Now, let me help us all out in something here. I don't know about you guys, but there is a great deal of tension in this text. Do you feel that tension? I don't see any nodding heads. Okay, let me just help you out. There's a lot of tension in this text. And if you're not listening right now, maybe that's why you don't feel it. But there is just tons of loaded tension in this text. And I don't know, you know, if you're anything like me, you want to skip on to the next section. The next section, as I said, you know, is talking about God and how he can do all things and how he can make possible what's impossible. That being said, this text is here for a reason. It's not just a means to an end. Jesus is calling this man out in his barrier to discipleship. Like him, we all have barriers to, to discipleship. We all have things that are, that are just like in our way in, that, that, that hinder us, that hamper us from following Christ more. And Jesus calls this man out in him. Now what I'm not saying in this, what I'm not saying is that wealth, that money, that possessions, that things, that work are bad. Nowhere in scripture does, does, does God's word categorically condemn those things. I'm not saying those things. What I am saying is those things can deceive our hearts. Those things can promise us certain things that aren't necessarily true. There are certain things that wealth can promise that are antithetical to discipleship, to entering God's kingdom, and that's the tension that is here. I don't know about you, but I just want to skip through this passage because of all this tension, right? I mean, it'd be much easier, if you're anything like me, to skip through it and read through it and get to that good part. But even as a pastor, I want to skip through this, right? Even as a preacher, I want to skip through it because the next part is much easier to preach. I mean, let's be honest. The next part is much easier, you know, like later on tonight, if I just move on to this next passage, I'm going to get way less emails and phone calls later tonight or tomorrow if I just move on to the next part, right? And yet I think the text is here for a reason, so we have to ask ourselves, why is it here and what is the purpose? Let's be honest with ourselves once again. We live in a wealthy city. We live in a wealthy area of a wealthy county of a wealthy city in one of the wealthiest nations in the entire world. So we have to do something with this text. We have to understand something from this text. And there are at least four things that just my own reflection have come, uh, have come to mind as I have thought about what are some of these ways that, that wealth can deceive us, can promise us something that aren't necessarily true. This isn't an exhaustive list, but these are just four things that I thought of. I think they're on the screen. Wealth and the pursuit of wealth can seem to promise control. It can make us believe that we are in control of both our lives and the world around us. But this removes God from his throne 
and places him deep within the depths of our payroll. Wealth and the pursuit of wealth can seem to promise security. It can make us think that we are both safe and secure. But this removes from God his sovereignty and places him in the welterweight class. Wealth and the pursuit of wealth can seem to promise significance. It can make us believe that possessions and money are the definition of our value, of our meaning, of our purpose. This removes God as creator, as the one who dictates and, is the, and relegates him to just another sage in just another book. And wealth and the pursuit of wealth can seem to promise perspective. It can make us think that those who have get the best view of the world and what's going on in it and how to work in it. But this removes from God, this removes God from his word as the authoritative book, the authoritative understanding of his good design. Again, I am not saying that wealth is bad. I'm not saying it's inherently evil. So please do not hear me say that. What I am saying is that it has a way of deceiving us. It can have a way of deceiving us, I should say. I mean, businesses don't run in the red very long, right? And part of our act of worship is work well done. Thank you to Tom's you know, book and all of his work in this area. We can understand that work is a good and redemptive thing for the sake of, of the mission of Christ. And yet what this text tells us this morning, and it doesn't contradict any of that, is that there are these deceiving ways that wealth plays on our hearts. I'm not pointing the finger at any of you. But I think Jesus is challenging all of us as his church to look at some of these ways that wealth can lead us astray. C.S. Lewis says this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving way too little. Giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charities expenditure excludes them. Recently, a friend of, of Greer and mine called us because she's planning on going into full-time missions um, in Australia. And we've, we've known this gal for a, for a while now. We've been planning to support her. But when she called, when she made that first call, the first thing we thought of, another moment of confession, the first thing we thought of was where do we have surplus? Where do we have a little extra that we can give to her? Not where can we be pinched, where can we be hampered for the sake of entering Christ's kingdom? Jesus calls this man to remove every barrier, and he calls us to remove every barrier, even if it is wealth. There are loads of other barriers, but this text is pointing towards one that I think if we're all honest, we all deal with this. So that being said, now that we've seen this specific application, let's move to the next portion of the text, verses 23 through 31. And I'll pick up in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel 
to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. We see here in these verses the general truth As Jesus expands the viewfinder, as Jesus zooms out, he takes the plane from 2,000 to 20,000 and helps us see the general truth that can be applied to all of us, something we all need to hear, even similarly to the first part. Now, what we notice here, I hope you noticed, is that the man didn't follow Jesus. The man had the offer on the table. He asked Jesus, what does it take to get eternal life? And Jesus said, And the man walks away. So Jesus turns his gaze to his disciples, those who are left, those who have followed him as Peter chimes in. And he starts to teach them about this understanding. What does it mean to actually remove every barrier that hinders our discipleship? He tells us how to remove those barriers. First, though, (laughs) he tells them how impossible it is to remove those barriers. He says this, he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He talks about this for one reason. It's not some kind of crazy, you know, in the wall of Jerusalem or something like that. He's basically saying, this is impossible. Kids, this is like saying a horse is going through a hole in a Cheerio. Young people, it's like, it's like a cow is going through the, the, the camera lens of your phone. It's like an, an elephant going through an eyedropper. The point is, it's impossible. He's just showing the degree of impossibility. It's nothing special. He's being very clear once again. Jesus ratchets up how hard it is to enter God's kingdom. And the logical question that follows by the disciples is this. Then who can be saved? Makes sense, right? If this rich man who seems to have all of God's blessings, you know, he has money, he has wealth, he has lands. If he seems to have all of God's blessings, but he doesn't have the kingdom of God, he's left the decision, then who can be saved? And Jesus says this this wonderful thing that helps us understand. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus responds by saying it's not about who can be saved. It's about who's the one who's doing the saving. The question isn't what must I do to inherit eternal life. The question is who must I know? Jesus reframes their perspective. Jesus reminds his disciples that God is the only one who can make kingdom entrance possible. But the question is still there. What must I do? You know, I think all of us can relate to both the rich man 
and the disciples because we ask, what must I do? Right? Ever since the, the fall, ever since we were kicked out of the garden, we've tried to get back into the garden with our own power, with our own will, with whatever device we figure out in order to try and get to God. And yet Jesus right here tells us, you can't. It's impossible. He uses those words. So once again, we're just left asking, so how do we understand this? If it's impossible, what does that mean? And here's where the heart of the gospel shines forth. At the heart of the gospel is something that's impossible, that's made possible. At the beginning, at the middle, and at the end of the gospel, there's a God who is making the things of man that are impossible, possible. Jesus is doing what we cannot do. So Jesus tells them, remove every barrier, remove every hindrance, everything that hampers you from becoming a disciple of me. He says, do these things. And if it's wealth, which it probably is for all of us, remove that thing. Whatever it takes to get to me to enter the kingdom, remove that. Oh, and it's impossible. Well, then what are we supposed to do, Jesus? If it's impossible, what are we supposed to do? And Jesus says this, the good news of the gospel is that God makes that which is impossible with man possible. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus removes the barriers to our discipleship. Those things, those, those promises that wealth can seem to make to us, those deceptions that wealth can, that wealth can give us are all fulfilled in Christ. They're all fulfilled in who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus is always in control. Jesus is always keeping us secure, for he is our rock and our refuge. Jesus is the one who determines our value, our significance, our meaning. Jesus is the one who helps us understand the way the world works and how things are actually supposed to be through his word. Jesus is the one who makes the impossible possible. This text actually leaves us with the same tension it starts with. And that's a little awkward. We don't like that. We like resolution, right? In the grand scheme of, of, of drama, you know, there's, there's conflict, 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 and then resolution, and then it goes back down, right? And we all get happy because there's resolution in that. Well, there's resolution in revelation. But here, Jesus leaves us sitting in this tension, So I want to go back to that question I asked at the beginning. What is one thing that you have that you could not live without? My hope is your answer is the kingdom of God and the one who can make that possible. He calls out to all of us, come and follow me. Will you follow him? Let us pray. Father, we praise you for your word because it causes us to challenge our own perspective. Lord, it challenges our perspective, our understanding of how this world works. And Lord, we pray that this word would continue to change our lives, to work on our hearts. Lord, we pray that it would transform us that it would inform us in the ways of how to live, and that we would be formed in you. Lord, we praise you for this text specifically because it speaks to our hearts. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us an openness to what it has to say. Pray these things in your name. Amen.